Hello and welcome to the Friday, December 17th, 2021 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, the top Iowa political stories of 2021. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and with me today are Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, James. Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, James. And Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics, wherever you find your podcast. Today, we're talking about the top Iowa political stories. I'll uh, kick off the discussion by doing the political thing, hedging my bets. Uh, top story title uh, for me was a dead heat between the January 6th insurrection at the nation's capital and COVID-19. Um, so, although... You might say the insurrection didn't happen in Iowa. Um, it certainly impacted Iowa, and I mean, there were Iowans involved. Um, so it, it certainly um, touches on Iowa, if nothing else. And certainly we've been talking a lot about it over the year, and um, our elected officials have been talking about it. Um, maybe not as much as we would like to hear them say, but uh, uh, and there are so many questions about the insurrection uh, that are unanswered. Uh, it's interesting this week, the developments with the House Select Committee looking into it with the release of some of those text messages um, from President Trump's friends over at Fox News and from his son uh, urging him to uh, do something to stop the activity at the Capitol by his supporters. Um, and quite frankly, I think this is a story that uh, is going to be with us for quite some time. Um, and and the impact, we haven't completely felt the impact yet. And then COVID, same situation. Uh, it, it's not over. Uh, if anything, uh, you know, the news reports this morning, it sounds like it could be worse this winter than it was last winter, which is hard to believe. It's hard to believe that more people have died of COVID this year than in, in 2020. Um, that's quite an accomplishment. Uh, <laughs> something to hang our hats on. <laughs> Did you think in 2020 we were going to be making COVID the top story for 2021? No, no. You know, I mean, when we, we first were introduced to COVID, we were talking about a couple months, you know, six weeks, two months, we'll all be back at the office, back to normal. And um, yeah. Well, you know, we've only missed that by, what, uh, 18, 20 months. Uh, <laughs> so uh, let's hope that it's not the top story in 2022. Yeah, I mean, at, at this point in 2020, we, you know, we had a vaccine that was ready to go and people were going to start getting it, you know, in the new year. And so, yeah, that mm -hmm. it seemed like that was going to be the end of it at some point, but didn't we, I don't think we anticipated maybe how many people would refuse to be vaccinated and how political that whole thing would become. I mean, that was, I guess it shouldn't surprise us because that's how everything is. In hindsight, the whole, you know, vaccine mandate situation, should that really have surprised us, you know, given how um, politicized and contentious wearing masks were? I mean, mm. if, people, if, if, if people weren't going to wear masks, were they really going to get vaccinated? Hmm. Well, and it's surprising that the you know such a large mandate you know was would be needed. I mean, I thought it just seemed like everybody was so you know 
tired of the pandemic and wanted it to end that, you know, I figured maybe 10% of people wouldn't get vaccinated or 15, not, you know, 40%. Right. And, and how much of this is, is to do with like sort of the new world order of we're now a lot of us um, looking at different social media feeds, you know, we're looking at different things that algorithms are giving us differently. We had different language to talk about this. And the same thing with the insurrection. I think you could make an argument that um, the different um, political persuasions and, and different people are just sort of living in different realities. And, and that's something I think we really hadn't thought was going to happen and something we might have to reckon with you know, in the coming years, if, if we want to sort of get back to a shared reality with shared facts. And and you're right. I, I think the January 6th, 6th insurrection is a, a perfect example of that, of people living in, in two different realities and, and nobody having a shared, you know, uh, understanding of, 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 of the facts. Um, and it's just, it's surprising and frightening to me quite honestly that you still have that you still have um a large segment of the population and you still have politicians um continuing to you know feed this false narrative or this false belief of there being a rigged election that it was stolen that there's widespread fraud um it in in, in the fact that you can't get you know, politicians to, again, recognize what numerous courts and judges and reviews have found and definitively said, you know, look, there was no widespread fraud. This election, you know, was free and fair. Um, it wasn't stolen. And, and, and yet we're continuing to deal with this. And, and it's, I, I think that's the big story of the year, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, we... We knew that even, you know, we knew that if Trump lost, he was going to say it was rigged and stolen. We knew in some way. And at least in that case, I mean, all of us didn't, didn't, you know, we didn't see the votes counted in Wisconsin and we didn't see these things happening. But I mean, that's the remarkable thing about the gaslighting over the, over the insurrection is we all saw it. I mean, you know, we, we saw them in the Capitol. We saw them storming the the steps and, and knocking down police officers and breaking windows and and stealing things i mean we we saw it happen and yet they're telling us not to believe what we what we saw which is a and the, and the fact that that's actually worked with some segments of the of the political landscape is i mean it's just it's a, it's a new level of sort of this you know people keep calling it post-truth and i guess that's that's probably accurate. Uh, it's the truth. We're in post-truth. But uh, yeah, that's, I mean, there are trials going on. There are videos coming out almost daily during those, you know, because of this, this legal process of these things happening. And, and we're being told not to believe that, which is, it's just, I mean, I don't, I don't know where we go from here if that's, if this is, you know, what we're going to do. Well, but, but Todd, they, they told us that we landed a man on the moon, too. We all saw that on TV. And, um, you know, that didn't happen. Yeah, I don't. But I don't. I don't. Yeah, I, I understand. But I don't I don't think, you know, I don't think like 60 some percent of the Republican Party believes we didn't land on the moon. So, I mean, that's they believe that the election was stolen and that the 
that this attack on the Capitol was, you know, no, no big deal. It was interesting this week. I saw a story, uh, Hugh Hewitt, who is a, a conservative, I don't know what blogger, uh, radio personality. Radio, yeah. yeah. Um, was moderating a debate in Minnesota for a gubernatorial, the GOP gubernatorial primary. And his first question to each candidate was, do you believe the election results? Do you believe, you know, that, uh, um, it was rigged. Um, and, and, you know, it's almost like maybe that's the first question we need to ask every uh, candidate uh, running for office these days is, you know, do you believe the 2020 election results? Do you believe in those? Do you believe it was rigged? Um, and and I mean, I mean, the answer to that question will tell us a whole lot about that candidate and, and uh, you know, sort of what their grasp on reality is. Um, so, Heading into uh, 2022 in primaries, I guess maybe that's something to keep in mind. Um, uh, other stories that uh, tripped your trigger in 2021, um, Amy? Um, I think definitely one of the big ones um, for me, and, and you could argue whether this is political or not, was the UAW strike. Um, I, I do think it's political because in an environment where you've got you know, the state legislature um, and governor sort of working to um, tamp down, um, you know, unions and, and bargaining um, and and sort of the few years that they've not they've made it optional um, basically to have then a big strike and then have, you know, leadership kind of sit on the sidelines and, and not say much about it. That was really interesting. Um, and then you almost had, um, you know, the NRCC, you know, ostensibly on behalf of Grassley saying, you know, that there was problems with the strike, you know, farmers were, were hurting and, and the supply chain was hurting and it wasn't a good time. And that's really interesting because you started to see people take political sides to this. Um, th this was like, you know, 10,100 workers that were affected in several states in Waterloo. It was like over 3,100 uh, workers approximately that were affected. So, so this was definitely a big deal locally, but um, I think you could make a case that this might be the beginning of what might be more strikes. You know, we've got such a shortage of workers that unions are having more power, workers are having more power. So I think in 2022, we are going to possibly see more of those coming down. It also struck me that this was um, sort of a gift to the Iowa Democratic Party um, for them, the party to latch on to, uh, you know, how many, you know, social media posted you see of, you know, Democratic office holder on the picket line, um, you know, with the striking workers. Um, I don't know if the party really capitalized on it, uh, if it'll have any lasting effect, but, um, you know, it, it certainly gave them something to seize on in a otherwise sort of dry political uh, period of the year where there wasn't a whole lot going on. Uh, so Democrats tried to make the most of it. I don't know whether it, uh, like I said, I don't know if it has any lasting effect. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. Um, and, and, you know, in a year and an, and an upcoming year when, when Democrats are really kind of struggling to find um, what's going to hold voters attention and get voters excited to vote for them in the midterms um, as they anticipate losing seats, you know, federally and, and things like that. Um, it seems to me that maybe the worker angle would be a good one for them to take. They did seem to really take the reins on that and were rewarded uh, for that. Um, so 
that could potentially be something that, you know, Democrats pivot back to. I think one of the criticisms of the Democratic Party in recent years has been that they've forgotten the working man. So what a great way to, to get back to it is to really like set yourself up as um, once again, the party, you know, of the of the working person. And, and the question I have is how many of those uh, folks at, at John Deere and other places that are striking are, are voting Democratic? A uh, story this week showed that something like, I, I want to say 60, 70 percent of the striking workers at Kellogg's in Michigan uh, voted Republican. Now, will this will this experience change those votes? I guess that remains to be seen. Uh, we may get may get a, a, a taste of that, uh, you know, in November. Um, but, you know, it, the work blue collar workers have sort of been go, migrating to the, the Trump party uh, for the past few years. So, um, you know, I don't know if it'll have an impact on Democratic politics or not. Well, and for for Iowa Democrats, they may this may sort of fit in with, I don't know if you've probably all noticed that uh, Democrats have been talking a lot about what they call the, the Reynolds workforce shortage crisis. Or, uh, so, I mean, the, the idea that, you know, not only do we need to, you know, ex- create jobs and expand, you know, and, and draw new companies in and things like that, but you also need to sort of, if you're going to attract people into the workforce, you need you know, worker protections, you need higher wages, you you need, you know, a more welcoming state than, than maybe Republicans have been uh, creating. So those, that's a, that's an issue that you can catch a lot of stuff under this, you know, kids are moving away, people aren't working because they don't want to work low wage jobs with few benefits and, and, you know, put their health and safety at risk. So, yeah, there's an opportunity there to sort of pin those problems on Republican policies. Well, and not to stray too far afield from the top stories of the year, but it's interesting as we head into a legislative session that, you know, a lot of the priorities we're hearing from sort of the the business friendly groups um, are those same topics, Todd. You know, they're talking about making yes. Iowa a more welcoming place, addressing workforce housing issues, addressing uh, child care issues, those sorts of things. Um, I mean, it's hard to believe that in, in, in this day and age that we could find some sort of, uh, simpatico between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, but you know, maybe that's the Christmas miracle that we're all looking for. <laughs> yeah, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't seen a lot of, you know, groups embracing the idea of eliminating the income tax. So I don't know if that's, you know, I, I know that's a winning issue among us, you know, a segment of Republicans at least. And, mm-hmm. but I mean, the math is is, I mean, you, you can't do it. <laughs> That's, it's, it's not impossible, but it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's in uh, that, it's in the ballpark. You, you need to have Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitford give you a math lesson. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he seems to think when it's we, possible. When we start paying 15% sales tax, it's going to be really good for the, mm. the merchants of Illinois, Minnesota, yeah, Nebraska, exactly. and Missouri. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where we we'll have to go to Missouri to get our fireworks again. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, uh, what's on your list of the top political stories from the year? Yeah, so the the top political story of the year uh, for me um, was Iowa's um, second congressional district uh, election challenge. 
um, the um, race that at one point seemed like um, it would never end. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was the biggest uh, political story for me. Um, so, you know, it was one of the closest uh, congressional races um, in, in, in decades, um, you know, one of the closest congressional races, um, you know, in, in, in U.S. history, um, you know, a incredibly razor thin six vote margin. Um, there were, you know, um, several recounts, um, you know, discrepancies in the recount process. Um, uh, ballots that um, Democrat Rita Hart claimed were were, were wrongly um, rejected, um, and that um, you know voters were were disenfranchised. Um, I mean, there were just so many twists and turns um, with this story, um, and it went on for for months and. Um, you know, it turned into uh, a national story with, um, you know, national Republicans um, picking up on this, um, you know, and casting this as uh, an attempt by Democrats to try and steal or overturn a state certified um, election, um, you know, at, at the same time that, um, you know, you're dealing with the, the fallout and the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection and, and, and the attempts by, you know, Republicans to try and overturn uh, the presidential election. Um, yeah, that, that, that was the top story for me. Uh, it, what was interesting to me about this is, is that it was even close in the first place. Um, I mean, we're looking at a, a congressional district that has uh, a Democratic voter registration advantage. Um, you know, Johnson County is in that district, which gives a, a a Democratic candidate about 50,000 vote advantage, you know, from the starting gun, you might say. Uh, and that it was close at all uh, came as a surprise to some of us, especially given Marionette Miller Meek's track record in congressional races. Uh, yeah. So it, would, <laughs> it was. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I'll have to admit, I, um, came into, to the, to the campaign at the, at, at the tail end. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't start covering the, the race until, um, I think maybe end of August, um, early September, but, um, I don't know. My impression of things was, um, that I think the reason why it was so close, um, was partly due to the pandemic, um, and the fact that, uh, Rita Hart and her campaign, um, it wasn't, it wasn't your traditional campaign, right. That you would see in, in, in a typical year, you know, they were doing a lot of the virtual events, you know, they weren't really going out there meeting face to face, um, with, with Iowa voters, you know, they weren't really doing the, 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 the door knocking, um, you know, the, the, the canvassing. Um, and, and I think, I think that, that impacted, you know, that the, 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 the race and the outcome and why it, it became so close. Um, uh, the other thing about that race that I, I think was strange to me was the fact that um, the retiring Democratic incumbent, Dave Loebsack, didn't really campaign for, for, for Rita Hart. Um, you know, you didn't you didn't really see him out there, you know, um, you know, trying to 
um, you know, energize Democrats and, and, and energize voters to go out and, and support uh, Rita Hart. Instead, he was out there campaigning for, for Joe Biden. And when he was doing that, you didn't really hear him talk about about Rita Hart. Um, so I, I, I found that odd as well. You know, it's going to be interesting, uh, you know, given the current situation with COVID and the Omicron um, variant, you know, if, if this continues, will Democrats make the same choices they did in, in 2020 about uh, in-person events, door knocking, uh, those sorts of things? Because it didn't work out for, very well for them. And, and, and Republicans, you know, say they think that gave them a huge edge in 2020, being out there knocking on doors and doing in-person events. Um, so I, I would be surprised if Democrats made the same decisions uh, if this is still a, a, a concern in, you know, the summer and fall of 2022. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. You know, I, I think that's why, um, you know, this race became so close and, and why um, Marionette Miller Meeks and, you know, I guess it's it, why she, you know, eked out with, with six votes, although, you know, it's, it's still kind of a question mark there, um, right? But um, yeah, that's I think that's why you saw her... Um, you know, make gains in um, some of those uh, rural counties, um, you know, south of Iowa City, south of, of, of the Quad Cities, you know, counties that previously, you know, went for a lobe sack and that, you know, Miller Meeks was, was able to flip because, you know, she was able to get out there. She did the, the, the face-to-face, um, whereas, you know, again, Democrats and Rita Hart, you know, kind of opted for the virtual method and, and, you know, that limited their outreach and their ability to, um, to get out to, to those voters. And, you know, had they done those face-to-face events, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe it would have flipped the other way and it would have been, you know, read a heart by, you know, a slim margin or more. I have to think that not doing face-to-face events, uh, uh, on the university of Iowa campus probably hurt read a heart, uh, that, um, you know, that, that, that's a, a population that you expect a lot of Democratic votes, but there are a lot of undervotes uh, in those precincts in Johnson County uh, where people voted for president, but they didn't vote for Congress. Um, surely there are, you know, half dozen or, or more uh, people who would have voted if they had seen Rita Hart in person multiple times, uh, as, you know, you normally would see in a, in a campaign um, there. Todd, uh, anything we've missed so far that's on your list? Uh... Uh, you know, one, well, a couple of storylines from from the year that I thought were important and interesting. You had the uh, sort of politicization. You know, it's it's God. I need more coffee uh, of, of the of these sort of uh, local uh, elections and and and. Uh, local like school boards and, and you know just the and, and the governor basically called on republicans to you know treat those races like a general election and go out and you know uh, elect conservative candidates and we we've, we've seen the issues crop up in school boards you've got the the battle over various books you've got uh the battle over masking whether masks should be required and, and you know, after a federal lawsuit led a, a judge in des moines to basically say that uh, barring schools from mandating masks uh, discriminates against, uh, you know, disabled Iowans, people that are more susceptible to infection, uh, that sort of thing. 
and, and you know, going forward, that's uh, those dynamics are going to carry over into the 2022, you know, political general elections and primaries. This idea that that uh, you know they need we need to take control of these local governments, city councils, and school boards, and uh, and you know, in Cedar Rapids, we had a pretty a fairly politicized uh, mayor's race with a progressive candidate, Amaro Andrews, taking on uh, a Republican, Tiffany O'Donnell, and and shots back and forth about, you know, Tiffany potentially being like, you know, mailers that said that she was tied to Trump. And and then, of course, the other side said that, you know, Amaro Andrews was needlessly making this a red-blue battle. Uh, and that kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, that kind of... Uh, flows into the second storyline I was thinking about was sort of uh, <clears throat> how uh, the approach to education policy in the state has has changed so much in just the last few years. I mean, it used to be fairly a bipartisan, uh, you know, a bipartisan sort of uh, effort to improve public schools. I mean, Republican governors had improvement plans. Democratic governors had improvement plans. The legislature routinely passed reform measures and teacher pay changes and things. And it just seems like with the Republican majority right now and the governor, they're far more focused on helping people get out of the public school system. They want to do vouchers. They want to do charter schools. Uh, they have attacked schools, as I said, for having some books on the shelves, and and they took away their ability to manage the pandemic based on local conditions, and, and we've seen an erosion of local control uh, for schools. Uh, you know, they they got a 1.7 percent funding increase, which didn't keep up with inflation, and Republicans are talking a lot about inflation, but I doubt that they're going to do a 6.8 percent increase in in school aid next year, but uh, which would keep up with inflation. So, yeah, I just it just seems like you know Terry Branstad was a, a big proponent of public school reform, uh, Vilsack Culver also, and uh, it just seems like you know Governor Reynolds was really the first governor that I can remember that gave a condition of the state speech and put out an agenda that did not have any measures to try to improve public education. It was all focused on let's let's help people get into private schools because public schools are failing. So that's a pretty big change in dynamic and it's, it's going to have a, a pretty broad impact going forward. One of the other storylines, uh, and this is tied to the pandemic, is the pandemic relief that we've seen from Congress, uh, the CARES Act, the American Rescue Plan that is pumping a lot of money into the state of Iowa, into communities all across Iowa. And, and Amy, you mentioned uh, that, you know, this is there are a lot of decisions facing local governments about how to use this money and, and how that might impact those communities. Yeah, they're looking at, you know, what they can do with the money, first of all. So you're you're basically like tied to certain things, depending on which bill we're talking about, obviously, like um, the first CARES Act, of course, was like tied to really specific things like you could use it for broadband, you could use it for, you know, sewer and water infrastructure, that type of thing. Um, it's a little bit broader in the American Rescue Plan, but you still got to sort of abide by certain uh, regulations. But nevertheless, a lot of Iowa communities do um, have a lot of water infrastructure issues. I mean, you had the Iowa DNR that came out with these new rules that are affecting a whole lot of really old legacy um, sewer and water systems. 
that are going to cost millions and millions of dollars for these cities to fix. And largely, they really don't have that money unless they bond for it. So that's really going to be helpful if cities do decide to go that route. Um, another thing is broadband. Um, Waterloo's um, now taking that really seriously after passing a, a, a bond that said that they could indeed put up their own uh, broadband municipal system in the early 2000s. They've sat on it. You know, it's really expensive to do that, to, to actually dig in the ground and, and lay all the fiber. Um, now that's actually a possibility. So I think you're going to start seeing, you know, especially in 2022, but then going through 2023, 2024, all of these major projects coming to these cities that are, you know, really, really needed. So I think that'll be a big storyline in the next couple of years. All right. Any other big stories or we've caught, we've hit them all. So many. So many, so many. <laughs> and, you know, and the, other, the other thing, almost every one of these that we've talked about didn't, isn't ending at uh, December 31st that it, these, you know, whether it's COVID, whether it's the insurrection, whether it's uh, pandemic relief, all these stories will continue to be, um, you know, news in 2022. So we can come back and revisit them time and again. But that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. Um, if you enjoy the podcast, tell a friend and subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Send fan mail to podcast at thegazette.com. Don't forget that the work of everyone you heard today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. McFisto will take us out. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics. For Amy, Todd, Tom, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Be well. And Merry Christmas. <laughs>